and welcome to the Contours podcast by the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy. This is your host, Carolyn Mormon, and today we'll be talking about the ramifications of the Russian-Ukrainian war on regional water and agricultural systems. Since the conflict began with the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, the war has caused a humanitarian crisis and rampant problems with the global food supply. What are the ways the international community can look to solve this? Let's discuss. I'm joined by two great guests. The first is Zoe Robin, who's currently a non-resident fellow at New Lines, researching the nexus of water and diplomacy. Previously, she was a Fulbright Research Fellow in Jordan, where she focused on climate change, migration, and public policy. She has written for Foreign Policy, Al Jazeera, and New Lines Magazine, among other outlets. She also co-leads the Diplomacy Working Group of Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Network and is a Senior Fellow with Humanity in Action. Eugene Chazowski is the Senior Director for Analytical Development and Training at New Lines. He oversees the Institute's publication and content production process, manages institutional training efforts, and guides the development of analytical products. His analytical work focuses on political, economic, and security issues pertaining to Russia, Eurasia, and China, as well as global connectivity issues related to energy and climate change. Zoe and Eugene, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thanks for having us. To get us started, Eugene, can you give us a quick update on how the conflict is looking right now and any recent updates that have happened that will help inform this conversation we're having? Sure. So, yeah, we're at this point well over a year into the long running war uh, in Ukraine when Russia launched its full scale invasion back in February of last year. And essentially right now we're in a grinding war of attrition. We have seen Ukraine get some limited gains, uh, some territorial gains back from the territory that it had lost to Russia early last year. But in terms of a major counteroffensive, they've really faced some challenges. And partially that's due to Russia's entrenched defenses, as well as a, a slow trickle of Western military support that's only really starting to be felt in recent months. But at the same time, Russia has faced challenges uh, on its front. And I think that we saw that very clearly with this recent attempted mutiny uh, on June 24th by the head of Wagner, Prigozhin, and his forces, essentially culminating in uh, a standoff between Putin and Prigozhin, which was mediated by the Belarusian president into a very tenuous ceasefire of sorts, if you will. So essentially, we, we've seen this back and forth on the battlefield and really just an immense humanitarian toll of the conflict. We've seen thousands of people killed, many more displaced. We've seen Ukraine face issues like power cuts because of energy infrastructure that was damaged by Russia. We've seen also the, the most recent destruction of the Novokokovka Dam which has really impacted Ukraine from a agriculture, water, and, and energy standpoint. So this is basically where we stand right now, well into this conflict. Eugene, you touched a little bit at the end on some of these agricultural impacts, such as the bombing of the dam that you mentioned and all of these other things. Zoe, can you give us a little bit more detail here about how the war has been affecting the global food supply? Yeah, sure. So going back to the outbreak of the war, we saw an almost immediate impact on the world's food supply, especially when we think about the fact that Ukraine accounts for 9% of the world's wheat exports. Um, it's the world's number five exporter of wheat globally. 
Now, when Russian vessels started to blockade Ukraine's ports in in the early days of the invasion, this prevented about 20 million tons of grain from reaching markets that were really, really dependent on these shipments. I'm thinking of certain countries in the Middle East and Africa. Uh, Egypt is one example where it imports over 2 million metric tons of wheat from Ukraine each year. And so right away, we saw reports that Egyptian bakers were having to reduce the weight of their loaves. Egypt's one example, but the UN Food and Agriculture Organization's food price index increased by over 20 percent from February 2021 to February 2022. Um, And so this was impacting countries all around the world. And we also have to take into consideration the fact that many countries are simultaneously dealing with climate change and droughts uh, where their own domestic agriculture sectors are struggling. And so this food inflation, the rising cost of bread, the social tension that's linked to rising food prices around the world, all of these factors started putting a lot of pressure on both Russia and Ukraine to come to an agreement on getting these shipments out. Um, and I think that really led us to the the Black Sea Grain Initiative, which I'm sure we'll we'll get into. The world was watching rapidly as the Black Sea Grain Initiative was passed in July 2022 as a piece of landmark diplomacy that allowed Russia and Ukraine to send grain shipments without a direct bilateral agreement while in the midst of an ongoing conflict. So, Zoe, I'm wondering if you can walk us through the logistics of this deal and what exactly it does for the global food supply. Yeah, of course. And I also think it's interesting to look at how this deal came about. So starting in March 2022 and accelerating into late June and early July, Turkey started leading shuttle diplomacy between Russia and Ukraine. And simultaneously, the UN's International Maritime Organization was using its legal expertise to spearhead the implementation of the agreement and also to to sort of lend some international legitimacy to the process. And so Russia and Ukraine signed the Black Sea Grain Initiative on July 27th of 2022. And it's, it's overseen by a main body, which is called the Joint Coordination Center, or the JCC, um, which is based in Istanbul. And it is comprised of two separate task forces. The first one, which is led by the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. And this task force focuses on facilitating Ukraine's grain exports. And the second task force is led by the UN Conference on Trade and Development, and it focuses on facilitating Russia's grain and fertilizer exports. Um, And so these two task forces are are operating under the same umbrella, which helped Ukraine and Russia unlock shipments through the Black Sea without having to enter into a bilateral agreement, which would still be relatively impossible. So while we're on the deal itself, You mentioned this dream team, if you will, combination of the UN's role of implementation and then Turkey as a key mediator from the beginning of this deal being in the works. What is drawing Turkey to engage here and what's giving them the ability and the strength to be very powerful in this process? Yeah, so I'm happy to take that, Carolyn. I think if you look at the role of Turkey, it was really quite notable in terms of making this deal possible. I just want to take a quick step back and mention that previous mediation efforts surrounding the Russia-Ukraine conflict going back to 2014, when we first saw the Russian annexation of Crimea and the start of the separatist conflict in eastern Ukraine, those repeatedly faced a lot of challenges to the point of not being implemented whatsoever. I'm thinking primarily of the Minsk protocols that had 
Germany and France as mediators between Russia and Ukraine. And really, we never saw those protocols, starting with a ceasefire and going all the way to the political implementation of, of all of the different details that were agreed to, we never saw, saw that implemented. And primarily because Russia did not see Germany and, and France as essentially objective enough mediators. I mean, these were countries that were supporting Ukraine, that had passed sanctions against Russia for its efforts in Ukraine. So it really was a non-starter from the beginning, not, not to even get into the, the issues of sequencing and implementation, things of that nature. Now, fast forward to 2022, and you have this much larger Ukraine conflict, but we did see a, a successful intervention in the case of Turkey. And I think that was for three primary reasons. First of all, Turkey, despite being a NATO member, it was the only NATO country to not pass sanctions against Russia. It had substantial ties, economic and security, with both Russia and Ukraine. It was the only NATO member to do that. So it really put Turkey in a unique position. Logistically, also, because of its uh, location uh, on the Black Sea, it really held a strategic point from which these grain exports between Russia and Ukraine could be unblocked. And so the, the combination of those three things, that, that, it's, that it didn't pass sanctions, that it had relationships with both Ukraine and Russia, and because of its location itself, allowed Turkey to really facilitate this deal. And as Zoe mentioned, then the UN can, can kind of take the baton and be the implementer and essentially granted international legitimacy. That really makes sense how Turkey has been able to really dive in here. It's interesting that you mentioned that Turkey is the only member of NATO that hasn't placed sanctions on Russia for the invasion of Ukraine and how it gives the country in a combination with all the other factors that you mentioned, an ability to play a key mediation role in this very, very important piece of diplomacy. Eugene, while we're still on the deal, there's been a number of challenges to getting it implemented and extended. And we see a timeline for it needing to be extended that's going to be happening in a couple of months and some reports of Russian officials being a little bit wishy-washy on if the deal will be extended. What does it mean for the future of the agreement? And what do you see as roadblocks in the way of it being further implemented and even extended? Well, as you mentioned, Carolyn, I mean, this deal has faced challenges really from the beginning uh, in terms of its implementation. So we saw actually literally the day that this agreement was passed, Russia launched rocket attacks as it has been for the past year plus in Ukraine that actually hit Ukraine's Black Sea port infrastructure. Now, none of those attacks actually disrupted the grain shipments. And because all of the parties involved in the agreement, Ukraine, Russia, Turkey, and the UN had an interest in seeing it through, it ended up not slowing down or not stopping those shipments of grain and other food supplies. But we've seen continued attacks against Ukraine that Russia engages in, so that always poses a challenge. We've also seen Russia, in some cases, essentially using the grain that it has seized from territories in Ukraine and sending those shipments on its own, and then using essentially the Black Sea to ship other types of goods, including weapons from some rogue actors like Syria. But all of these things have not stopped the Black Sea Grain Initiative from continuing. There's been more than 30 million tons, uh, mostly of corn and wheat that Ukraine has exported since it was reached. Uh, it's enabled markets in Africa and the Middle East to get much needed grain supplies. And yes, every time that the deal gets uh, extended, it has a short several months long window. 
Russia frequently uses that time uh, leading up to the extension or of the expiration to complain about the deal and say that it's not getting its fair share. But I think that's largely uh, as a negotiating tactic. And ultimately, both Russia and Ukraine do benefit from this deal. So that's why we've seen, despite all of these challenges, it's the one major agreement that involves both Russia and Ukraine that has actually sustained itself since the war began. So in a recent piece that, Zoe, you and Eugene co-authored for New Lines, you describe the threats that the war is posing to Ukraine's water infrastructure and how details from the Black Sea Grid Initiative can be applied in a different context to address some of these problems exposed to the water infrastructure in Ukraine. Can you go into a little bit of detail for us about what this threat is for Ukraine's water infrastructure and how it's affecting food production, the wider Ukrainian agricultural industry, et cetera, et cetera, even the energy sector, for example? Sure. So threats to Ukraine's water supply have really been overlooked when we talk about diplomacy and food security, even though these threats are potentially much more dangerous and much more long term in in nature. When we're talking about things like the destruction of irrigation channels um, or other essential infrastructure or the pollution of waterways. Um, And it's starting to gain more attention following the destruction of the Kaukavka Dam, which Eugene mentioned before and was destroyed in June with, you know, evidence pointing to Russia being responsible. But this this dam was one of the first times that the media is really focusing not only on how military blockades are impacting the world's food supply, but also how water systems in Ukraine and Russia are such an essential component when we're talking about bringing food to market. So, you know, with just this single dam being destroyed over 500,000 hectares of land are under threat of turning into deserts, and not to mention the Ukrainian communities, over 80 communities with over 700,000 people who are now having their water supply thrown into jeopardy. But the other thing I want to emphasize here is that even though it hasn't been on the front page of the newspapers all that much, there's been a long history of attacks on Ukraine's agriculture sector, and especially the water supply going back to when the invasion began. There was a, a study published in Nature Sustainability that looked at data just from the first three months of the conflict. And even at that early stage, the researchers identified 64 reported impacts on the water sector. And these included pollution, damage to dams, mines overflowing, um, and the interrupted operations of hydroelectric stations. That 64 number that you just mentioned is alarming at the very least. How easy is it to repair these water systems once they've been damaged? So one of the reasons that the situation is so dire is because it's very difficult to repair. Um, Ukraine is highly industrialized, so attacks on an irrigation channel or pollution in one reservoir is going to very quickly impact the water supply in another community. And the other reason is that water systems are really expensive to build and they take a lot of time. So almost anything that uh, changes or damages this sector is going to have a timeline for repair that could potentially span decades. Um, And when we talk about pollution that's coming from, you know, soldiers discarding military equipment in reservoirs where it's decomposing and releasing harmful materials, it's very difficult to excise when it's in a water system. And once that water is then flowing into land that you're trying to grow food on. And so these these threats become global in nature. 
Uh, also, when, when a community's access to water is threatened, there becomes a danger of epidemics because there's less clean water from sanitation. And the other thing that I think it's worth mentioning here, Carolyn, you, you also brought this up, is that the water system has tentacles that really spreads across the entire economy. And so this includes Ukraine's power and energy sector, where 10% of power is coming from hydroelectricity. It also includes Ukraine's industrial sector, where it's producing things like metals and fertilizer that are really reliant on irrigation systems. So for these sectors, it's like a feedback loop where they need water to operate. Um, and the water and agriculture sector also depend on these industries as well. So there's a lot of dependencies that make the situation even more dire. That last part you mentioned about that feedback loop, just like you said, really exposes how dire of a situation we have. I'd like to turn to what you both recommend can be done about this. We've seen some attempts by the international community to draw attention to the threats to civilian infrastructure, such as water infrastructure. I'm thinking of a UNSC resolution passed in April 2021 that compelled combatants to protect these systems. Unfortunately, this has not really come to fruition, as you outlined, Zoe. But I'm wondering, in your opinion, Zoe, how can the U.S. better engage on this issue? And along that line, can any parallels be drawn between the framework and progress of the Black Sea Grain Initiative that the U.S. can apply to water and agricultural systems? Absolutely. And I, I think this was one of the guiding questions for our piece where Eugene and I really tried to analyze the Black Sea Grain Initiative and break it down and figure out why this remains the only major agreement between uh, Russia and Ukraine. You know, Eugene talked about this earlier in the podcast, but in our piece, we highlighted three main components that we felt lent success to the whole process. The first was the initiative's emphasis on an area of shared interest, that it's in both Russia and Ukraine's interest to see this deal to fruition and to comply with it. Uh, the second component was its placing of technical experts at the forefront. So we're talking about agriculture experts and, and maritime legal bodies in the forefront of implementing it. Um, so there is a focus on what's practical and how to actually make this work. And then the final component was its use of a trusted intermediary, which you can really see through Turkey, which had a working relationship with both Russia and Ukraine and has that strategic geographic location. Um, so there are a lot of parallels here that the U.S. can draw on to protect water systems. The interlinkages between waterways certainly means that monitoring and preventing pollution in one region would benefit its neighbor. And we've recommended in RTA that these efforts move forward across the territory, so not using water as a weapon of war. Um, and we've also recommended both protections for environmental researchers and the increased use of remote sensing that can help uh, figure out what the situation is on the ground without putting people in harm's way. From a zoomed out point of view, the, the Black Sea Grain Initiative showed us that collaboration is definitely possible even when two countries are at war. And so especially as summer gets more intense and more countries are grappling with drought and famine, we think that American diplomats uh, and international diplomats can hopefully draw on the model of the Black Sea Grain Initiative to protect water systems and ultimately ensure the, the world's food supply. And as a final question, I'd like to draw on what you mentioned, Zoe, about a lesson learned from the Black Sea Grain Initiative is using a 
mediator like Turkey, who has a working level relationship with both Ukraine and Russia to serve at the forefront of an initiative like this. Eugene, do you foresee that any kind of future diplomatic efforts by the U.S. like this is going to have to continue to rely on Turkey for more leverage and pull with Russia right now due to Turkey's relationship with Russia and the U.S.? And how do you think that is that going to have any kind of geopolitical ramifications on the Turkey-U.S. relationship? Yeah, definitely. I think Turkey has proven itself to play a very important role, not only in, in terms of a mediator for this Black Sea Grain initiative, but also its continued relationship really with both Ukraine and Russia. I mean, Turkey is is a major security partner for Ukraine in terms of uh, uh, supplying drones and, and other military equipment, even as it imports energy and, and other supplies from Russia. Now, I, I will say, though, that it this type of Black Sea Grain Initiative model, which, which Zoe has outlined, it's not necessarily just about Turkey. I mean, Turkey plays a very important role in this context of grain supplies, but we can really broaden it out to look at other resources and to look at mediation as a whole. There are several countries that can play a role alongside the UN and alongside, of course, the warring parties themselves. We've seen, for example, Saudi Arabia and the UAE get involved in, in diplomatic mediation uh, with uh, things like prisoner swaps, and even countries like China and India that have maintained relations with both Ukraine and Russia that could potentially play that role. China is obviously a much more complex case given that it does support Russia more so than other countries, but there's a lot of those countries in between the West and the pro-Russian camp, if you will, that can potentially play this role. Now, one thing that I also wanted to mention, bring this around to where we started in terms of the state of the conflict. Clearly right now, you know, with Ukraine engaging in counteroffensive military operations, with all of the dramatic events that we've seen take place uh, in Russia in recent days with, with their military infighting, this does not appear at first glance to kind of lend itself to any type of diplomatic mediation. But I would just say that it's not necessarily the case that this is a bad thing ultimately for the Ukraine conflict. And what I mean by that is that we've seen, despite its continued support of Ukraine, the U.S. and NATO countries are not interested in a prolonged conflict that, that goes on forever. And certainly the publics of these countries are also wary about indefinite support of Ukraine, even as they obviously are against Russia's actions there. So it could be potentially that, that Ukraine's challenges on the military front Russia's challenges internally could place those countries more willing to negotiate ultimately, perhaps not an end to the conflict, but some kind of workable ceasefire. And I think everything that we've outlined and that Zoe has outlined on the Black Sea Grain Initiative and everything that's achieved despite all of its challenges and setbacks does give us a worthy model to consider moving forward for the U.S. and its allies. It's interesting, Eugene, that you brought up these wider situational happenings with Russia, with the region, things that are happening that could provide maybe a window for more initiatives like this to play a key role in making sure the effects of the Russian-Ukrainian conflict are not as dire as we've seen them to be in the past over a year since the conflict began. I'd like to thank both of you, Zoe and Eugene, for appearing on this episode of Contours. To our listeners, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on major streaming platforms, including iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify, so you don't miss any of our new podcasts. You can also check out further analysis into geopolitics and U.S. foreign policy at www.newlinesinstitute.org. All the best.